Hello, and welcome to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on law and policy. I'm Adam White, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, and I'm joined, as always, by Richard Epstein, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Richard, how are you? Well, I'm fine, thanks. Well, Richard, there's a lot in the news these days to discuss, but let's talk first and foremost about judicial nominations. On the day that we're recording this, March 12th, the Senate voted by 53 to 46 to end the debate on the nomination of Naomi Rao to be a judge on the D.C. Circuit. That'll clear the path for her to be confirmed later this week. Richard, uh, you know Naomi. I know Naomi. She's a former student at your law school, your previous law school, the University of Chicago. I actually succeeded her at George Mason University, uh, running the Center for the Study of the Administrative State. And so as we look forward to her hopeful confirmation, what are your thoughts on on her arriving on the D.C. Circuit bench? Well, first of all, let me throw in a plug for another one of my former students from the University of Chicago, Eric Murphy, who was just confirmed earlier this week or last week for the Sixth Circuit. He was actually my research assistant, and he's a wonderful fellow and an exceptionally strong nominee. Uh, Naomi was never my personal student, but she and I worked very closely together, uh, particularly in planning the Federal Society Student Convention, which was held at the University of Chicago in 1996. And and we remained close friends after uh, her graduation. Both she and her husband, Alan Lefkowitz, were were friends of mine when they were in law school. I mean, I'm just so thrilled that she got this particular nomination. She is the true, genuine, decent person. Uh, she's never said an unkind word about anybody. She has a fine twinkle in her eye, a great sense of humor. She's a very fine scholar and a very serious person. And uh, No one can call balls and strikes in this crazy world, but one of the things that I like so much about her is that she has very few predilections that are political. She really tries to get this stuff right and thinks of administrative law not as a hidden agenda on some substantive point, but rather as a way to try to make sure that you can get some kind of harmonious relationships between what agencies do and what courts do when they oversee them. Uh, so I'm thrilled that she's done this. I have a very powerful prediction. I suspect that the vote on the final thing will be 53-46, just like it was this time around. Maybe the, she'll pick up another vote. She certainly will not lose any on this. I think the real tragedy is why the Democrats see fit to oppose somebody like this. I mean, it's just absolutely nuts that they don't bother to differentiate between the people whom they oppose. They seem to dislike anybody who's nominated by a Republican and anybody who's been active in the federal society. I'll mention just one other thing. I also have a sweet spot in my heart for Naomi because she used to be at the Institute for Justice in the summer of 1997, and she helped my daughter get her bearings when she worked there um, in between her junior and senior year when she was at Columbia College. So uh, I think it's all roses. Uh, this is not one on which there's going to be any reasonable disagreement, because if you say anything that's not nice, I'm going to bark at you. No, there's no disagreement here. I'm a big fan of Naomi. Uh, I've been her friend for years. Uh, I was happy that she went to the White House, if only because then I got to take over the program that she had founded at the law school. But Naomi's research is a good reminder that in many ways, um, administrative law is just constitutional law. Um, applied, applied in the context of the structural constitution, notions of due process, and so on. Her writings on administrative law have been interesting, um, very principled. She has been very critical of uh, overreach in terms of agency independence. Um, she's been a critic of that. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out in her docket. But just in the mundane, mundane work that tends to fill up the D.C. Circuit's docket, uh, so many regulatory cases It'll be interesting to see how Naomi applies various aspects 
of administrative law. Now, the downside of being on an interesting court like the D.C. Circuit is that you also have to do a lot of FERC cases. That's the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Oh, I love and, that stuff. And the, I did, too, but most people don't. Well, um, the two of us should be on the court. Well, when um, when I'll tell you, there's a great quote from Robert Bork after he was after his his Supreme Court nomination was failed, and he went back to the D.C. Circuit for a short time. He told some friends, I think the quote was, um, "His the last words he'll ever utter will be um, the uh, the tedium, the tedium, just based on the the D.C. Circuit uh, docket. Um, it's a little bit slow at times, but we look forward to see how how Naomi does. And I think that it's safe to say." that Naomi's confirmation on the D.C. Circuit will immediately uh, p- present her as a front-runner or a shortlister for the next vacant Supreme Court seat whenever that happens. And I think she'd be a great judge there, too. Uh, that's right. No, I am very excited for her under these circumstances. I The one question I had was, how do you know how Josh Howley voted? The fellow from Minnesota would put up a little bit of a protest against her. I hope yeah. you realize that that was foolish. Yeah, Josh Senator Hawley did end up voting in favor of cloture. He's he's now after his initial uh, controversial remarks about about Naomi. He has he seems to be supporting her nomination. For those who weren't keeping track, Senator Hawley raised some eleventh hour concerns about Naomi, whether she would be a proponent of substantive due process, which is a Another way of saying uh, judicial activism, so to speak, and also some concerns that that she's insufficiently pro-life. I have to admit, in all the years I've been talking with Naomi about constitutional law, we've never actually talked about the life issues. I don't have the foggiest idea where she is on those issues. But on the concerns about substantive due process, I was uh, – it, it's not clear to me what in her record might have tripped those triggers. Um, but Senator Hawley seems to be comfortable with her nomination now. Yes, I mean, it's also not at all clear what substantive due process means, depending on who uses it. The early rate regulation cases and when the 14th Amendment was applied to um, uh, rate regulation, these were all cases that were done under the due process clause. And it turned out that uh, in the key case, uh, what the Supreme Court said was without due process of law means without just compensation. And we were off to the regular takings doctrine. So that doesn't strike me as being particularly odd or difficult. Uh, there is always a question as to whether or not the term is internally contradictory with the way in which John Hart Ely argued many years ago. But I'm not even sure that that's correct. The way in which I would put it is if you have a very bad set of procedures, it means that you're biasing the outcome. When you're biasing the outcome, you're increasing somebody's chances of winning relative to somebody else. And that swing in the differential is the taking of property from A to B. Uh, so that bad procedures lead to bad outcomes. And it turns out if the connection is sufficiently tight, maybe the sort of verbal distinction between substantive and procedural due process is overdrawn. And that's the position that I've taken. Mind you, uh, if that's the position, it's not the same thing as a living constitution. Uh, so this is not sort of a freewheeling argument. It's simply another effort to try and say that the purpose of government is to stabilize relationships between private parties. The purpose of government is not uh, to figure out how to pick winners and losers between them and shift wealth and opportunities back and forth between them on a seemingly random basis. If that's what Senator Hawley is worried about, I'm worried about that too. Uh, but Joe, the mapping between substantive due process and essentially those kinds of switches is, I think, a bit overstated. So um, you may put me down as an activist. Other people have said a lot worse, uh, but I don't regard myself in that way. And so I think in many cases you have to be really careful before you sort of denounce these kinds of broad principles without understanding the way in which they've been used in our past. 
Well, I'll be honest, Richard, when I equated uh, substantive due process with judicial activism, I was basically just, um, as the kids would say, trolling you to see uh, to see how well, you react. Well, you managed to provoke the reaction, right? I mean, right. but it's, look, uh, and, and, and it's okay to do that. Uh, but, you know, it's important to sort of understand, uh, if you actually go back to our history, um, you know, um, uh, Jim Ely, a former professor at Vanderbilt, shows a very consistent pattern of substantive due process use in the 19th century, none of which is particularly adventurous in terms of what is going on. And you don't need substantive due process the rails. I mean, if you take many of the cases that deal with cruel and unusual punishments and introduce a principle of proportionality in these cases, uh, which says that you cannot, for example, have a death penalty uh, for the statutory rape of a child, uh, that's as substantive due process as you can get, uh, but it turns out that there's absolutely nothing in the text that supports it. You can do terrible things with perfectly good clauses, just as sometimes, not so often, you can do good things with perfectly terrible ones. Well, let's talk a little about a little bit more recent history. In the last few days, there's been some controversial statements by Senator Warren on breaking up big tech companies and also from former Attorney General Eric Holder on packing the court. Um, let's start with Senator Warren. On March 8th, she put out a statement at Medium.com under the very subtle and nuanced headline, It's Time to Break Up Amazon, Google, and Facebook. And she later uh, added Apple to that list. Um, and she elaborated these points at the South by Southwest conference, the the arts and rock music, country music conference that's now become uh, the place where Democratic political, political candidates launch their campaigns, evidently. But in the statement she issued at Medium.com, she said, quote, today's big tech companies have too much power, too much power over our economy, our society and our democracy. They've bulldozed competition. They've used our private information for profit tilted the playing field against everyone else. And in the process, they have hurt small business uh, and stifled innovation. And then she later goes on to say, that's why my administration, that is, if Senator Warren becomes President Warren, will make big structural changes to the tech sector to promote more competition, including breaking up Amazon, Facebook, and Google. Richard, how did you react to all that news? Well, when I hear that, I said just every single sentence that she says is false in terms of the way things go. There are lots of complicated problems, but let's start begin with one. Breaking up is hard to do. Uh, one of the things that some of these companies have is they sort of have integrated platforms, which is what you see on Facebook. And it turns out that uh, people want to be able to communicate with as many people as possible. If you have two simple systems, uh, you have a friend on system A and you're on system B, you can't get there. Now you have to log on two systems where you've got somebody else and he's on the third system or on no system at all. Uh, so there's always been, with respect to network industries, a very very powerful force with respect to consolidation. And so then if you're going to just start to figure out, well, what would the remedies be? You'd say, well, let's figure out this is this a kind of an antitrust violation. And it turns out it's not an antitrust violation, at least under American law, um, unless you want to say that the various mergers that took place were to some extent illegal, even though all of them went through a form of clear of preclearance. And to the extent that there was internal growth, the general view on that is we want people to grow internally. And if it turns out in the end they have a monopoly, so-called, two things are going to happen. One, there's going to be a high price umbrella for other people to come in under, and that's going to turn out to be a very attractive type of situation. Um, 
or it turns out they're going to have to keep on lowering their prices so as to make sure that they remain competitive. There are problems with privacy, but those would exist if you had competitive companies as well as monopoly companies. So this woman is a complete amateur on antitrust law, and she doesn't do anything. Let me just talk about the app, not the Apple situation a little bit, the Amazon situation. Um, this is a proposal which has been made most notably by a woman named Lena Khan, who may be taking a job, Lord protect us, in the United States Senate as a staffer in a very well-publicized Yale Law Journal article that became a front-page story in the New York Times business section. But I think, you know, it's kind of healthy. You should look at it. Uh, just yesterday, Amazon shuttered one of its uh, uh, store businesses. Uh, it turns out the monopoly that they have in online sales didn't translate to anything in the um, brick-and-mortar business. Uh, and, you know, for people like Elizabeth Warren, well, you always have a monopoly extension because big guys always win. Well, it turns out big guys don't always win. They sometimes suffer from a lot of disadvantages. They can't uh, do it well. And then if you start looking at what's the great vice against them in the areas where they're truly dominant, well, they sell a very broad selection of goods at very low prices with very high rates of consumer satisfaction. And somebody says, well, that means they're shoving other people out. Uh, the only way you can subsidize their competitors is to ruin the life with respect to cons- consumers. Uh, one other point about Im- innovation, she doesn't know the first thing about that subject either. If you're Amazon, uh, you are subject to competition which people trying to come in to take away your markets, but also, in effect, the people will innovate with the idea of trying to sell you stuff so that they can make themselves a fortune. Uh, there was a rapid turn-up in innovative startups and so forth the moment that Donald Trump became president, not because he was a genius on these things, but people thought that the browbeating that took place under the Obama administration would start to cease. You could go through all of these things, and what she does is she gives you very broad statements. There's not a semblance of truth. Uh, there's no particulars that she's trying to show with this. Uh, she cannot explain why there's actually any violation under the current antitrust law. It's part of the demagoguery, uh, which is not, as far as I am concerned, a suitable way in which a former Harvard professor from the law school ought to conduct herself in public. How's that? Well, I'd say I agree with everything you said on antitrust, that I think a lot of the people who are reaching for antitrust to break up tech companies, it's like the situation where all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, um, or maybe to turn it around. When they identify a problem, everything starts to look like a hammer, um, and they reach for the usual tool, antitrust, as a way to break up or to solve the problems they, they, they think they see in these Silicon Valley tech companies. Now, I was intrigued by the way that Warren phrased that one statement about power. She said, today's big tech companies have too much power, too much power over our economy, our society, and our democracy. I'm currently working on a project, a working group on uh, internet platforms and how conservatives should think about internet platforms. And I actually framed up the project, it's just beginning now, in similar terms, thinking about these uh, internet platform companies in terms of their market power, their power over information, their power in our culture, their, their power in our culture, and then also their, their, their role in national geopolitical, geostrategic power. I think these are interesting questions, and I think there's a lot of uh, debates, useful debates among conservatives and libertarians on these things. But I'm definitely not convinced that everything that, that might be wrong with uh, modern society in terms of these tech companies is easily solved or solved at all through the blunt instrument 
of antitrust. And I think that Senator Warren, by reaching for that and just announcing she's going to break these things up, even when it makes no sense how exactly you would break them up, whether you're breaking them up just on product lines, which wouldn't do anything to solve, say, Google's uh, market power over search or over advertising, how you break these things up in a coherent way. Um, I think she's basically just sloganeering with a thin veneer of academic support. And that academic support, as you mentioned, comes in large part from people like Lena Khan, the former law student. She's now a I think she's still an academic, but she's moving over to the House Judiciary Committee's subcommittee on antitrust. So you have that. You also have the new book by by uh, Columbia Law Professor Tim Wu, which I did review. Right. Where did you review it again? You Wall Street everywhere. Journal guy. Right. So, um, and so he's writing on this about the, what he calls the curse of bigness, borrowing the line from Brandeis. So you have this effort to reorient at, uh, antitrust law to, uh-huh. to change the law to suit what people think are the current problems, and um, this is all obviously part of a much bigger debate about what's the right relationship between Washington and government. And Silicon Valley and uh, the practical power that it has over our lives. I mean, you, would you deny that, that Google itself has enormous power in our day-to-day life and its power that is in many ways reinforced by the accumulation of 20 years' worth of data and experience? I mean, Eric Schmidt, the former head of Google, he from time to time has said that Google's two decades of data create a moat that's very hard for competitors to cross. I mean, don't you think that's true? I think there's some truth to it, but on the other hand, I think what typically happens is if you start looking at the pricing conduct, uh, it continues to go down. The feature that people like most about Google and most about Facebook is that everything is for free. And the moment what you try to do is to destroy the size of the data trough, you know, the trove, then somehow to get those services, you're going to have to pay cash, and that's going to wreck the economy. So uh, to me – the the question in all of these situations is first show me the particular abuse and then let's figure out what the remedy is. And for the most part, I just don't see it with respect to the data collection. Here's one of the useful senses of data. So what happens if you know something about what people want, instead of sending them a bunch of random spam, what you do is you give them targeted information so they can make better purchasing decisions. Uh, That helps the sellers. It helps the buyers. It helps Google getting a fee. I just don't see under those circumstances where it is. But even if there is stuff, the problem in these cases can't be solved by breakup. The difficulty you have is in these cases is the unauthorized release of the information to somebody else. You've got two companies, both very big, and if either of them makes unauthorized releases of the information, there's still a huge problem. So breaking up a company doesn't deal with the question of unauthorized use. And in fact, it makes it harder to deal with it because you get some breakdown and you don't know whether it's company A or company B that's responsible. And so what you have to do is to run two investigations in which each of these guys will point the finger at the other. So, I mean, to me, I have a very different approach. I don't think this woman knows the first thing about anything. Um, What I say is this system has provided huge benefits for the United States. When you see something is wrong, try to figure out a patch that will do it. Uh, But to throw out the entire system because, say, Cambridge Analytics managed to abuse some data which it received in violation, they used it in violation of their own contract by Facebook. That to me is, is, is a comment on the company that goes down. It's less a comment on Facebook. I will say this. I have never seen a bunch of companies that seem to me to be less able to project their 
their image in the public space than the giants that we have here. They're all put together by tech-type guys <coughs> or operations people. And when they have to deal in the sort of nitty-gritty of politics, they simply seem to be clueless on how to respond. If you're somebody like Elizabeth Warren, it's easy to throw out the abuse. If you're trying to defend a business, you actually have to explain the business model. And that asymmetry always works uh, to the benefit of irresponsible politicians. Well, so, as it happens, on the day that we're taping this, uh, March 12th, there was a hearing at the Senate Judiciary Committee. Where you saw the, the aforementioned Senator Hawley, not on the issue of, ju- of a judicial nomination, but on the issue of Google and privacy, just grilling a man named Will DeVries, who's the senior privacy counsel for Google, grilling him over the way in which Google oftentimes continues to track its uh, users' locations on smartphones, even when the users try to opt out of location services on their apple phone mm-hmm. and holly really raked the guy over the coals and the, and this this well, official google from apple that you were talking about sorry you said google is this apple or is it google so this was google it was the question about how google itself can still track your location even when you turn off location services on your apple phone uh by identifying your location through the wi-fi signal and holly was raking this guy over the coals um, blasting him for not giving users, first of all, the notice that they are still being tracked and the option to meaningfully opt out of being tracked in their location. Now, this official from Google, his response was that users benefit from Google uh, tracking your location even when you don't think you're being tracked, that a number of the apps that you use wouldn't function properly, this official said, um, if Google couldn't identify where you're at, but he never answered uh, Senator Hawley's main concern about transparency, notice, and opt-outs. And for me, for all of my worries about some of the larger tech companies, especially Google, and I wrote a long piece on Google last year in the New Atlantis, a tech policy journal. The piece was called Google.gov, and it was an intellectual history of Google's alignment with uh, nudge-style progressive uh, regulatory mindsets. You know, I have some real real concerns about Google and what it's capable of, but I think Hawley really made clear that at the very least, there needs to be some talk about, about uh, transparency and opt-in, opt-out in a way that just isn't being supplied in the market. And, of course, the market won't supply something that customers don't even know about, which really puts the onus of transparency-forcing transparency mechanisms on the side of the government, I think. Now, of course, like I said, I'm wary of antitrust. I'm wary, uh, to, to say the least, I'm wary of heavy-handed regulation, especially notions of common carrier regulation, public utility regulation. But I am open-minded about transparency-forcing regulation, and I'm hoping that the discussion moves in that direction at least. Well, I I, can, I'm, I think I'm a little bit more on the other side on this particular. First of all, breaking up will not change this. If it takes the apps to run to get this kind of information, if it's useful for the police to have it when they're trying to figure out how to save somebody or to track down a criminal, uh, breaking it up into two companies won't solve this particular problem. I have a very different view on this issue from you and I think from him. And it goes back, I think, to the question of what you do when anybody stores huge stashes of information, including the federal government. 
And what he's saying, in effect, is he thinks that the collection and the holding of that information is, in fact, the source of abuse. My view is if the release of that information is only done in accordance with uh, the appropriate legal rules, the fact that somebody holds it in abeyance is a good thing, not a bad thing, because it gives you greater flexibility. So, for example, when you're starting to talk about the NSA and various kinds of security searches, you've got a lot of information about phone calls and all the rest of this stuff, and the only thing you use it to is to track down terrorists. I think that's great. Maybe you need a warrant to take it out. Under emergencies, probably not. But the basic pattern that I would follow is that I am not particularly concerned about what is held by somebody. I'm much more concerned about the abuse that the people have with the data. And so I would put the question back to the senator and to you in the following fashion. What is it that Google has done that you do not like in your life or in anybody else's life? And what they say is, I don't like the fact that they can do all this stuff. This is not an argument in my view for ex-ante regulation on the collection of data it is an argument for very strong ex-post regulation where if they do engage in abuse they're subject to various kinds of civil and criminal penalties so I think that got, you got the remedial structure wrong on these particular things and so I would defend all these companies just the way I thought that uh, uh, Justice Roberts was completely wrong when he held that if you got this information about location, you couldn't use it in order to apprehend and to convict criminals under the Fourth Amendment. I think the correct answer is you can access that information on reasonable suspicion, and then when you get more information, you now have probable cause to get a warrant. But to shut down the entire process means that a lot of guilty people, it turns out, are going to go free, and I don't see any reason why we should do this. There are ways to stage the use of this information that makes much more sense than the on and off switch that, that Hawley is talking about. So I think, in effect, he's wrong, and I guess I disagree with you, too. Well, I really think the problem here is the lack of notice, and I think that Google – Well, again, this is a general notice. Here, world, we are storing this stuff. We will only use it for benevolent purposes. Well, that, and that, that might be the solution if Google informed all of its users in a meaningful way that they are being tracked even when they think that location services are turned off on their phone. That might be, that might be all that it takes, and I didn't take Senator Hawley to be demanding more than that. But when Google well, knows – when Google knows where you are better than anybody else in your life, where they know where you are, they know who you're with, when they know all of these things, even if they aren't using that information in an abusive way, although it would be interesting to find out what they're using that information for, but just the mere fact that they are sort of an omnipresent, um, uh, omniscient observer, constantly tracking where you are, what you're doing, who you're with. If that is true, that does strike me as the kind of thing that people ought to be on notice of. And if it takes uh, a government, if it takes a law passed by Congress to force these companies to offer upfront disclosure on this, even in the absence of other forms of abuse, I, I think I'm okay with that. I'm not. I mean, I would say if the government wants to put out a public notice to everybody, if you're on Google, somebody's going to be watching over you and the information will be stored. And the basic position is they could use it only for your benefit or for law enforcement purposes. The government can make that announcement and nothing much will change. Let me put it to you the following way. Suppose it turns out that these 
Google types are correct. And what they say is, you know, you turn this particular system off and it turns out your software doesn't work as well as it would if we could keep it on. And you yeah. just state that explicitly. How many people do you think would opt out? Because I think the protection that we have is there's so many people, I and mean, there's so much data, is the thought that somebody's going to look at Adam White or Richard Epstein uh, for titillation, two more boring subjects than whom you cannot find, um, is I just think so remote. It's like you can see a herd of cattle in plain view. Uh, but unless one of them is wearing a special pink hat on it, you can't tell one from the other. So I think, in effect, that this problem in terms of concrete homes just simply does not exist. And that one, one ought to think about in these cases are the ex-post remedies rather than the ex-ante remedies. So uh, that's where I disagree with both of you. It's not that I don't think there's a concern, but I think it's wildly overblown. Let me give you the following other question, Adam. What's your view if it turns out we have surveillance cameras staged on public places and in private buildings to watch people going in and out of stores and subways and so forth. And these things are on. Everybody knows it. And there's no way that you can opt out of it by saying, please don't take a picture of me. Uh, Do you want to turn all those cameras off and not catch the Boston killers in that massacre that took place five years ago? Well, I think the key, and it was there in the question, was everybody knows it. Everybody knows that when you are walking through a public area today, a shop, especially if you're going on to a place like a shopping center or going in and out of stores, as you said, there's always going to be a camera on the storefront. At this point in this society, I think people know this. I don't think people know so much about what Google and some of the other companies are tracking. And if it's just a question of a generational shift and there needing to be a transition period where there's a public education as to exactly how much they are being tracked, even when there's no cameras around and even when they turned off locational services and so on. I think that's important. I, I think that's, that would be a valuable service. The uh, market, the, I'd say the market ultimately can solve things as long as there's information on the market that people are aware of what's done. I think if people were able to push a giant button on their phone that t- actually turned off their Google tracking, um, they would be able to decide for themselves whether the apps that they need still function to the extent that they need them. There was a fascinating story not long ago at gizmodo.com, which is a great tech website, where the journalist, I'm blanking on her name, she used to, I think, write for abovethelaw.com. She turned off her Google app, totally disconnected Google out of her phone. I don't know how she did it, but it managed to basically disable a bunch of other apps. She had no idea Google was feeding location data and other information into. And that's an important wake-up call. So if if after 20 years there's a generational shift and we come to think we come to be aware of Google tracking and come to think of it in the way that we think about omnipresent um, security cameras at every 7-Eleven, well, then the, re- the need for regulation falls away. But I'm the more, actually, Richard, the more we talk about it, the more I think I'm right. I, I understand. I mean, I will forgive you for your indiscretion, but let me make the following observation about the cameras. There's no opt-out feature. Right. Um, so why is if we manage to survive without an opt-out feature there, why do we have to worry so much about the Google situation when opting out is much more complicated when you're talking about 3 billion users? Um, it's also the cases, you know, that there may be some interconnections between these various systems. If you sort of opt out and turn everything off and you get an emergency call, the next thing that somebody's going to say is we would really like Google to make an app so that when somebody desperately calls you to say that your child has an appendectomy, even if the phone is off, it's on. Um, I think in the end that uh, under these type of situations, uh, 
Senator Hawley has basically done both an indictment and a cure at the same time. He's brought to the attention of the public that we really have to worry about this particular issue. And then having brought it to the attention of the public, I don't think we have to worry anymore. Uh, let me put it to you this way. I believe that if you actually try to get the individual consents on these things, you might get them for a while. Uh, but once the first inconvenience took place, the concrete stuff will basically dominate the general stuff. Years ago, when American Express uh, used to send out stuff, uh, what they did is they had a kind of an opt-out system um, in which, you know, you won't get these ads if you do something and nobody opted out. Well, there's a reason they didn't opt out. They wanted to stop. Then when you have an opt-in system, people don't do it and they start screaming about the fact that they don't get the kind of information. Um, Opt-in systems are very costly to work. And years ago, I worked on some of these cases. And if you should have seen the reaction that people had when their credit cards were not automatically renewed and then they had their stuff bounced uh, when they tried to buy a plane ticket when they were away from home and so forth, what people want in those cases is a situation where they have to opt out. They only want the opt-in situation where they're starting a brand new service where they would like to figure out what's going on. Uh, so again, I mean, I'm Alfred E. Newman on this stuff you know i use these things all the time i don't have the slightest concern the slightest angst the slightest anxiety so the real question i'm asking is whether or not the tech groovies are a tail which i think they are or whether they're the kind of median voter and so i'll put the question back to you this way suppose it's 95 percent, 98 percent of the people are perfectly happy with the way things are and that every technical is deeply upset. Do we have to start putting in a system to satisfy the 2% when it's going to unglue the work that's done for the other 98 is, I think, a fair question. Well, I'm not going to answer your question so much as answer the question Ooh. I want to answer, which goes back to what you said earlier, which is about opting in or opting out. And I'm kind of agnostic on whether these things are opt-in or opt-out issues. But what matters to me, and I hope it's been the thrust of my comments, is that people should at least know whether there is an opt-in or opt-out, what they're opting in or what they're opting out, out of. And I think the concern here, it gets to the stage even before opting in and opting out, where it's just a question of apprising people of what the circumstances of their current condition are and what they can do, if anything, to change those circumstances. Even in the case of the security cameras, if I want to go to a, into a 7-Eleven, at least, I mean, I know that there's going to be a camera. You can't go into a 7-Eleven without putting yourself on camera. And in almost... And in almost any public place, there's going to be a camera around. The one thing you can do, though, is recalibrate what you're doing in front of those cameras. And it's not just a question of not engaging in criminal conduct. Of course, you shouldn't do that regardless whether the cameras are on you or not. But it is a question about what you're seeing in public doing, what you're saying, what you have with you, any of those things. You, whether or not you can opt in and out of being on camera, you can certainly opt in or out of what you're doing in front of that camera. Well, and, 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 and I think that the people, the people of this society, and all of this has to be judged against the backdrop of the society we actually live in, we now know that we're in, we have omnipresent cameras around us almost all the time, maybe not as much as in downtown London, but in general, there's cameras tracking us every time we walk past an ATM and so on. But I think we're still at that stage with Google, and I keep focusing on Google because it is the one company that worries me the most so much or so far. Um, we don't, I think, know exactly what it is. Oh, put it this way. We don't know where the cameras are and what the cameras are capable of recording uh, when, when we live in Google's, Google's world.
Okay, let me mention that uh, some years ago when we were at the University of Chicago and we wanted to put camera systems in for security, one of the things that we were told by the professionals is you need two kinds of cameras. You need secret cameras and you need public cameras. And you need the public cameras so as to alert everybody that somebody's watching them, but you need the secret cameras because the 99% of the people who are virtuous don't matter, but the 1% of criminals might be able to situate themselves in a way in which they draw the blank spots, and what the hidden cameras do is it gives you that extra measure of coverage. Uh, So it turns out that I would not be pleased with that. And so then the question is, is it sufficient to say we have visible and hidden cameras in this particular store? I think the answer should be yes. If you say, and we'll tell you where the hidden cameras are, it kind of defeats the overall purpose. So I'm going to go back. You have abstract fears. I have no concrete fears. And, you know, Google has done this for a long time and I haven't seen evidence of abuse. And, and for example, with the Pfizer stuff, it's the same problem. I will relate one little story. Uh, there was a Pfizer release that took place of a large number of calls that were made from the 202 phone district in Washington, D.C. And the question is, why did it happen? And it turns somebody had miscoded them so that they were 2-0. And 2-0 is the national code for Egypt. And so all of a sudden, everybody thought we were dealing with foreigners and not with domestic people where a different legal regime applied. Once the thing was um, essentially discovered, um, there was a story, I think it was in the Washington Post, that said, look what happened here. But the response was so rapid to destroying the forbidden information and removing it from all the dockets and from all of the system uh, that the story essentially disappeared. So to me, that's the key question. Uh, is the second tier response going to be great? And here, Google is the guy I like best because I know if they make one of these mistakes – the fines will be 10 times heavier than they are on anybody else because they have the money and there's going to be the real fear rightly in that particular case that if they've done it with 100 people, they've done it with 100 million people. Uh, so in some sense, your reputation and your size makes you a hostage. It doesn't give you a necessary advantage. And on the other hand, if there's some very little company and it does that, well, you go sue them, uh, they'll just simply shut the thing down. They'll avoid a lot of responsibility, but they'll be running 30 other small little companies and they'll continue the kinds of abuse. So I think on this one, we, we do disagree. Yeah. Uh, Richard, do you like Monty Python? I don't even know Monty Python. Uh, I heard of the name. I've never seen it. Uh, on the TV and show. I've never, they... Star, I've never even seen Star Trek. I mean, I am such a, shall we say, culturally shallow individual that you can well, put me to shame. Well, on the TV show, they used to have a, a way they'd bridge segments. They'd say, uh, and now for something completely different. So, and now for something completely different. Okay, Let's now, that's what I do get. Let's talk a little bit about Eric Holder before we run out of time. So earlier this week, Eric Holder, and this was reported um, in a few places, and it was quoted in the the March 12th Wall Street Journal. Uh, Eric Holder is quoted at an event at Yale Law School, or an event hosted by uh, Yale Law School and, and Columbia University, evidently. He gave a statement in favor of packing the Supreme Court, which is to say adding new seats that the next Democratic president would fill. And the quote in the Wall Street Journal is this. He said, quote, given the Merrick Garland situation, namely uh, Senator McConnell and the Republican senator's decision not to vote on President Obama's nomination to Garland back in 2016, uh, quote, the question of legitimacy is one that I think we should actually talk about. We should be talking even about expanding the number of people who serve on the Supreme Court 
if there is a Democratic president and a Congress that might be willing to do that. So here you have the former attorney general of the United States saying, and this I think is incredible, saying that at this point the Supreme Court's legitimacy is so much in doubt simply because Senate Republicans decided not to vote on Garland. The very legitimacy of the court is in doubt, and it might take adding seats to the Supreme Court under some hypothetical future Democratic president and Congress um, that that would be necessary to restore the legitimacy of the court. And this is something you and I have talked about before, and it came up. I, I wrote about it. I'm sure you wrote about it during uh, the Kavanaugh nomination, this assault by, uh, by, the, by the progressive left on the legitimacy of the Supreme Court the moment that Justice Kennedy walked out of the door to have, have – uh, the former attorney general declaring that the Supreme Court's legitimacy is in question and they need to radically change the court by adding new seats, which would surely destabilize the entire political situation and lead to a series of additions to the court by the next Democratic president and Republican and so on. I find it just incredible and a real sign of the time that for all the criticism President Trump takes for not respecting institutions enough, here you have the former attorney general of the United States threatening uh, the institution of the Supreme Court by totally destabilizing it and destabilizing the politics around it and adding new seats tactically in a way that even President FDR, President Roosevelt, knew better than to actually try to carry out after the country erupted in an outrage or in an uproar at least, at this proposal nearly a century ago. So what well, do you think? I'm, well, I mean, uh, it's going to be hard for me to outdo you, right? Uh, I'm tempted to try, but let me start saying, I, I think Mr. Holder was one of the worst attorney generals uh, that I can recall in my lifetime. He was a thug, I think is the correct term, uh, when he was the deputy attorney general and was a real specialist in the deferred prosecution agreements. He starts going after people like the um, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase with these rather dubious claims. Um, I am not a fan of anything that he's ever done, so I have not the slightest praise of his judgment. I don't think he was a fit and able attorney. Attorney General, and I think that this shows exactly why. Uh, let's just start with the, the Garland situation. I think the Republicans did something which is perfectly appropriate. Um, if you look at the way in which the confirmation process is done, it's with the advice and consent of the Senate. There's no requirement that the Senate has to turn people down for good cause. It's a free vote. Each senator can vote every way. So when you start to call this a theft, um, you're trying to say that there was somehow there an abuse of the particular process when in fact there was none. Who started all of this nonsense? Well, it was begun with Miguel Estrada back in 2003 when, in fact, the Democrats refused to give him a hearing. And so maybe you think it's perfectly legitimate to take a highly qualified individual and say we're not going to put him on the Court of Appeals, but it's utterly immoral to do the same thing on the other side. What's happened is the Democrats start the hardball. The Republicans reciprocate. The Democrats were the first ones to pull the boom on the, on the closure rules uh, when they had several nominees for the D.C. Circuit back in about 2012-2013. Um, they changed it. The Republicans followed. It's now followed with the Supreme Court. I think we had to change that rule because the usual rule was a long time ago is that you don't vote against somebody unless there's a profound reason to do so and that he or she is a member of the Federalist Society 
or a conservative or believes in originalism does not count as the kind of enormous departure. You want to look like somebody like Harold Coswell, who was an intellectual and a moral degenerate in many, many ways and was widely thought to be so at the time and was rightly voted down. So I don't think there was anything that was done. Now, what is the difference between the Kavanaugh situation and the Garland situation is on a very simple point. Uh, if turns out when Kavanaugh and when Gorsuch were nominated, the Republicans held both institutions. So all they had to do is to play it through. Uh, when Garland was nominated, the Republicans held one of the two institutions, and McConnell decided that he was going to push it to the risk, his prerogative to do so. He ran the serious risk that Garland, who was a kind of a centrist liberal, not a radical liberal, um, would be turned down. Hillary Clinton would win the election. She would actually dump him and put somebody further to the left. He was prepared to take that. What makes the Democratic position on this so utterly evil, as far as I'm concerned, was the abusive behavior. I have no objection to every Democrat saying, sight on scene, I'm going to vote against Kavanaugh. He's just the wrong flavor, which was the kind of the judgment that it turned out that was made by McConnell. But they didn't stop at that. They went to a campaign of disinformation and defamation, the likes of which you've never seen, taking a perfectly honorable gentleman and kind of exposing him to all sorts of vindictive abuse, sneaky behaviors and so forth. That's what delegitimates the system. If the Democrats had simply announced, uh, we're not going to bother to question the guy. We know what he's about. We don't want him. And then all vote no. This would have been the equivalent of what the Republicans did. And, of course, they did not do it. Now, the next thing about this is, you know, talk about justice being blind. Suppose it turns out that uh, the Republicans win. You know, the Democrats are doing their best to lose the election. Mr. Trump is the most flawed candidate imaginable. But he's got a lot of competition out there on the other side. He wins again. And now he becomes president. And he says, you know, um, we have, let's assume that the vote is 5-4 or 6-3, said this is not enough. Now that we've got both houses, we should expand the Supreme Court to 15 members and appoint four more Republicans to do so. What would Mr. Holder say? He would think it was outrageous as to why. The difficulty here, and I think why you're right, Adam, is institutions are fragile. If you look at the Constitution, there's nothing which says it. the Supreme Court shall consist of nine justices. It says one Supreme Court, number unspecified. We've developed a consensus now, what, since the 1860s, I think it is, over 150 years, where it's always been nine, everybody's followed it, paid from it once, and the whole thing falls apart. And I think he's just reckless and irresponsible to announce that. I think the entire progressive movement has done this. If you then put together their campaign on the court with their substantive prohibitions that they want to put into place, the wealth tax and so forth and taking over the corporate boards, I mean, they really want to make this place look like Venezuela. Just make no mistake about it. The moment you start believing in court, in court packing and so forth, you become a dictator. And what you are going to do is exactly what happens in various third-rate tin pot company. So, yes, I do completely agree with you. I think that Mr. Holder is a very dangerous person. Intellectually, has no distinction. I'm an alumni of Columbia University, and I wince whenever they put him on the cover of the magazine as if this is what the institution ought to stand for. Um, I've stopped making cash gifts to Columbia College because I cannot take the collective politics uh, that they engage in, and he's one of the reasons why. Well, I can't possibly top that. I will say on the point of um, of of institutions being fragile, 
it is true that Senator McConnell and Senate Republicans took a very strong, aggressive line when they declared preemptively and very transparently that they wouldn't vote on the Garland nomination and their reason why they weren't voting on the nomination. Now, as it happens, a decade earlier, when I was just barely out of law school, I wrote up my first law review article on exactly this subject, why the Senate did not need – there was no constitutional obligation of the Senate to vote on judicial nominees. Yep. And, I wrote, and I wrote this at the time when you had a Republican president nominating judges that were being thwarted in the Senate by Senate Democrats. Um, so this is obviously not a new story. And by the way, on the election year issue – there even was precedent in the Senate for not voting on Supreme Court nominees in the election year. This was debated in, in 1968 in the run-up to the Nixon uh, election. And so there was not – even if you take the you take what Republicans did in 2016 as an aggressive political line, it certainly wasn't a violation of any kind of time-honored tradition. And I think it didn't raise the sort of institutional stakes – the core packing will. And as you point out, it is totally incomprehensible to me that Senator, that Eric Holder and others would make these arguments at a moment when they don't control the presidency and they don't control one house of Congress. And they are one election away if things break against them from losing the house. Again, we might be standing here four years from now with a democratic president, house and Senate, but we could just as easily be standing here four years from now with a Democrat, with a Republican, uh, President, House, and Senate. And as you say, what will Democrats like Eric Holder say the moment that President Trump decides that we're going to preemptively add two seats? And knowing President Trump, he'll probably call to add four seats because four is more than two yes. um, in terms of uh, adding to the court. And what will they say then? Uh, it's, it's astonishing. Now, Richard, I wanted to talk about one other thing this week, the vote Speaking of the Senate, the Senate vote on emergency powers, but we're just out of time, so it'll give us something to talk about when we meet again. Okay, so, but we have one, one big disagreement there, guy. What is this? Our disagreement about the Google privacy issue. Well, we do, but we've, we've disagreed good. about that at length, and very reasonably so. And you know what? Google will be invading our privacy next time. We can talk about it then. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> well, I've enjoyed this, Richard, just as I enjoyed all of our conversations. Me too. Uh, I thank our listeners for joining us. There are so many other Hoover Institution podcasts <laughs> for them to tune into. I always had the pleasure, by the way, of appearing on Bill Whalen's Area 45 podcast this week. Yeah, he's Richard, terrific. He was. You were on it recently yeah, uh, as well. Guy. And I wanted to add, by the way, Richard, when you're not doing this podcast – or your other podcast, The Libertarian, you have yet another podcast with John Yu. And as it happens, John now has another podcast with the Hoover Institution uh, with uh, Hoover Research Fellow Michael Oslin. The podcast is called The Pacific Century. It's focused on geopolitics oh, and, and, and the Far East. So I encourage all of our listeners to listen to that. But until next time, Richard, I guess we're signing off. I think we are. All right, and goodbye. so... Which I'm going to go now and eat dinner with my wife. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye-bye. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.